the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 46 of Magic Markets. You've been hearing from Pietri Redlin, host of Herenia for the last month as part of Herenia September, but it is now October. And so we do not have a clever hashtag for October, but what we will hopefully do is uh, is have some really cool conversations as we always do. Mo, welcome from Canada. Yeah, thanks, Ghost. Uh, I think it's, it's also good to, you know, mix it up a little bit. I think we've, we've had some great trading insights from the, the Herenia team over the last month. Uh, and so this week's episode is almost a return to kind of the, the original flavor of Magic Markets. As we mix it up a little bit, it's talking about investments, investment concepts. And, you know, I think it also allows us to look at stuff that's sometimes conceptual, but sometimes topical as well. So I'm super excited about today's episode, simply because it means I can maybe talk a little bit less. You can talk a heck of a lot more. Ghost, you want to give the listeners a rundown in terms of what the thinking is for today's episode? Yeah, so for once, Mo gets to ask me questions instead of me peppering him, although he'll no doubt have some good insights as well. But I think tonight we're going to tap into my corporate finance background and we're going to talk quite a bit about deal making in the listed space. So why do companies use cash instead of shares? What are the benefits of being listed? How does that actually work in practice? You know, what are good examples? What are bad examples? And what really triggered the thought was the Zoom and Five9 deal falling over. Essentially, it was going to be an all-share deal where Zoom was going to buy this this call center as a service business, for want of a better description, and uh, it's kind of fallen over. And that triggered a thought that we would have a chat about some of the more corporate finance stuff, M&A, deal-making, and the like, Mo. Let's maybe just give the, the listeners some context for those that are not familiar with what happened. So Zoom, for those of you who don't know Zoom, I don't know what rock you've been under for over the last two years because it's literally been one of the only ways we've been able to, to meet people and talk to people and do business internationally. It is the video conferencing global platform. Zoom has grown phenomenally. I mean, Ghost, we spoke about it on this show. I, I was lucky enough to be an early investor, so I got it around 70 bucks a share. You know, it ratcheted up to about 500 bucks a share, currently sitting in, I, I must say, the, the mid to low 200s. So it's it had quite a bit of a roller coaster ride. A lot of that has been related to the fact that tech as a sector got super hot, valuations got insane. And the one thing we keep on hammering home to our listeners is it can be a great company, it can be a great investment, but if the price you're paying for that is disconnected, if the valuations are out of kilter, you could possibly come in for some pain and some pressure. So we've seen that on Zoom. That notwithstanding, there's another company called Five9. And as you said, it's a call center operation. Incidentally, also one of Zoom's larger clients. And Zoom in and around July of this year felt that time to make an acquisition. They want to try and entrench their service. They want to try and entrench Zoom as a player in the space for not just a pandemic type of a world, but for the world as we go forward. So that was really, I think, some of the intent strategically behind why Zoom approached Five9. That said, 
the deal was a little bit cheeky on Zoom's side simply because they were saying to five nine shareholders, hey guys, we really like your company and we think we're so fantastic, so we're going to pay for your company with our shares. And that's where I think it, it comes unstuck. Ghost, let, let's delve into the whole concept of paying for stuff with shares because at the end of the day, there are just so many moving parts and I think that's what's fallen flat in this particular transaction. But the concept's important as well just to highlight some of the risks for investors uh, should they come across this in futures as well. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with you know one of the benefits for a company of being listed is that it can do deals with its shares more easily. Now, any private company can also do this. You know, you can decide to you know we could merge Magic Markets with another company, and that company could take shares in Magic Markets, and everyone could go off and get on with building a bigger business. But it's rare in the private company space because there's not so much transparency. There isn't you know a whole lot of great financial reporting and risk committees and all the stuff that makes people comfortable about taking shares in another company. Because the problem is if someone pays you in shares, you are now in bed together, you are walking that road together, and you now have shares in that business. If they've paid you in cash, you know, you stash it in your bank account, you buy the car you always wanted, and you move on with your life, and you can invest in whatever you actually want after that. So listed companies like to do deals with shares because their shares are tradable. So the people receiving the shares have a chance of actually realizing it for cash. Typically later on, there's sometimes a lock-in or Sometimes they just hang on to the shares for a while because it sends a good message to the market. And they have some comfort over, you know, the regulatory status of that company. And of course, sometimes it just breaks completely. I mean, one of the best examples that most of our listeners will know is Steinoff. And that fight is playing out in court right now. In fact, it's the sellers of the Techie Town business who are having the biggest fight with Steinhoff as part of Steinhoff trying to sort out its creditors. And those liquidation hearings are underway in the Western Cape High Court as we speak. So much as Steinhoff has, has made good progress with its Dutch court proceedings and issued many confusing sense announcements along the way, which only lawyers understand, the reality is that the founders of Techie Town are having the biggest fight with Steinhoff because they sold their business in exchange for Steinhoff shares, which were worthless shortly thereafter. If they had been paid in cash, they would currently not have an issue. And what I saw in the South African market in the aftermath of that was a general hesitance to do more all share deals. So entrepreneurs were just not happy to take shares in listed companies after that because they just didn't understand the risks. And uh, that's less of an issue offshore because they haven't had as many scandals. I mean, it's as simple as that. South Africa is a relatively small market, uh, but still the Zoom 5.9 deal is, has fallen over and maybe Mo, we should unpack you know some of those reasons. Yeah. So First and foremost, I think we, we've just had five nine shareholders vote down the deal. They were potentially advised on that by by a group called ISS. We're not going to go into the full detail around that, uh, but I guess some of the specifics around it, and, and these are really the salient points, is at the time the deal was announced and put on the table, Zoom was trading at a, a fairly elevated market capitalization. Uh, their market cap at the time, I believe, was around, what was that, about $110-odd billion. And also at the time, the 5.9 shareholders said, well, you know, if we look at it, if we look at the valuation on the share swap from Zoom, it did not place as much of a premium on the stock as they would have liked to have seen. You know, subsequent to that, a lot of the competitors were taken out at slightly more generous premiums of 30, 40%. Uh, if memory serves, I think on this particular transaction, it was sub 20%. Uh, we can check that number. I don't hold me to that particular number. But what's happened from then until now is that the Zoom share price 
has fallen quite considerably. It's fallen in the region of around 30-odd percent versus 5.9. 5.9 share price has also fallen, but that's fallen around 15%. So naturally, because Zoom, the acquirer, the shares you'd be getting, have fallen by more than the shares you'd be giving up, that premium that was there, even if it was a smaller premium, has dissipated and is now maybe absent. And so I think just purely on the economics of it, It just didn't make sense and it was an unattractive deal to start off with in the first place. The other important thing that I just want to highlight here is that this is all about, for me at least, asymmetric information. I mean, you had mentioned the fact that you've got companies that like to do these kinds of deals. They like to pay with their shares, you know, conserve cash. Maybe they don't have the cash for the acquisition, whatever it may be. That's not necessarily the case with with, with Zoom here. But what happens is that inevitably you get this, it's done in an instance where companies feel that they can pay for their shares, which are arguably at a premium. It's almost as though they're sending the signal to the market saying, our shares are expensive, so we want to pay you with this expensive stuff. We think your shares are cheap, so we want to get your cheap stuff. And that's because someone has asymmetric information. Uh, It's why, firstly, I don't like these all share type of transactions. I actually prefer it where it makes strategic sense for the business. You could have a part share, part cash transaction. We've seen lots of those work. We've seen them successful as well because it means that everyone has skin in the game. Everyone's interests are aligned. And that's where I think this particular deal may have also fallen fat. What's your view on that, Ghost? Yeah, so the way the Zoom deal was structured is also important because it was structured for a certain number of Zoom shares. Now, what that does is it puts the risk of share price fluctuations firmly sitting on 5.9. The other way to structure this deal is to say 5.9 is valued at $14.7 billion and we will issue you however many Zoom shares are required to achieve that. Now, if that had been the case, this deal would probably have gone through. However, because the risk was put on 5.9 and Zoom's share price has been you know, somewhat of an embarrassment recently, which none of us are surprised by because it was way too frothy, uh, you know, that has then put the risk on 5.9 on, on and they said uh, no thank you we'll happily walk away but in this case Zoom actually doesn't have anywhere near the cash to do this deal so where companies do have the cash they will often throw a cash underpinning but the problem for Zoom as is the case for so many of these tech companies the valuation is so far removed from the current cash flows that the money isn't there, but the share price is, and the market cap is. So Zoom can't go and raise the kind of debt required to do this transaction because there's no ways their cash flows can service that debt, nor do they have the money lying around. And it's actually a mission for companies to go and raise cash on the market. It's expensive, rights issues are usually done at a discount, it doesn't always send the right message, it's not easy. So they would far prefer to do all share transactions when they can. And I must say, when this deal was announced, the first thing that came to mind was, wow, you know, 5.9 is going to be taking these Zoom shares at a fat premium. Great deal for Zoom. Huge deal for Zoom if it goes through. And here we sit, and unfortunately it hasn't. And honestly, so much of this is about market timing and luck, truly. You know, when if Zoom had signed this deal in sort of September, October last year, it would probably have sailed through. But because the share price has come under pressure this year, people have realized that actually, you know, yes, Zoom is a great company. I mean, we are doing this call on Teams, which tells you something as well. There are alternatives as good as Zoom is. And in reality, that valuation was just very far removed from from the truth. And that's why this particular thing has has kind of fallen over. And these part share, part cash deals that you're talking to are generally a better way to do it. We've seen a great example recently with Transaction Capital and We Buy Cars which has been done in a number of tranches and Transaction Capital has managed to get a controlling stake in We Buy Cars on a PE of under 10x, which is, it's actually not that cheap because if you look at like Motus and combined motor holdings, they're also trading at relatively similar PEs. But We Buy Cars is an amazingly profitable business. The return on capital is huge. I mean, I've written on it recently and 
Well, everywhere, actually. Insconnect, Financial Mail. I mean, I'm a transaction capital shareholder. I love what they're doing. Although the share price is expensive now. And so I'm actually slightly surprised that the WeBarCosh uh, sellers have agreed to take more transaction capital shares. But the thing is, as much as transaction capital is looking a bit expensive, it's nothing like Zoom. I mean, Zoom was just quite obviously way too hot. Whereas transaction capital is a great business. And yes, the share price might go a little bit sideways for a year or two. But over the next 10 years... There aren't many other companies I would rather own on the JSC. And that's where you can get away with doing share deals. And if there's a cash underpin, it helps people take risk off the table. Uh, funnily enough, the Techie Town example, so they had originally done a private equity deal before the Steinhoff transaction, where the founders actually took money off the table. So, you know, none of them are starving and crying into their pillows at night. It's just the difference between being very rich and very, very, very rich that they are fighting for at the moment. So it's a good example. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs think this way. Let's get the money off the table. Let's bank financial freedom. My kids don't have to work and neither will their kids. And the rest of it is is all upside and then they'll then they'll take shares. That's generally how it works. I think those those are definitely high class problems to have, you know, very rich versus very 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 rich. I mean, just just going to that transaction capital we buy cars example. I mean, you you'd indicated that we buy cars was on like a ten PE when they were taken out, uh, and transaction capital based on on current I guess historic is like on an eighty. PE. So there's still a lot of give and take there. I think, you know, the We Buy Cars guys, you know, in terms of taking transaction capital stock, it's not, to, it, like you said, it's not as though it's cheap necessarily, but it's also because it's part cash, part skin in the game. You actually still get exposure to the upside of the business that you're giving up. And at the same time, you're also getting the best of both worlds is that financial freedom element, if you want to call it that, specifically for founder-led businesses. I mean, bear in mind also, the other dynamic is that it's very different if it's two listed companies, uh, which tends to happen a lot up here, uh, and I guess probably down in South Africa as well. It's also very different if it's a listed company taking out a private company and paying all shares for that. Because then there's an additional dimension to it, is that maybe the holders of a private company want the liquidity. That's the only way they can get the liquidity. So I would almost argue it's easier in that space if you're taking an unlisted company into a listed space versus two listed companies where they're both equally tradable and that liquidity benefit isn't something you can actually price. One additional point I wanted to to just raise in terms of the whole Zoom and, and 5.9 thing as well is that we've been discussing trading for the last several weeks and quite often traders look at these two shares, there'll be a ratio, so they'll say, okay, we're paying X amount and that translates into X number of Zoom shares for every one five nine share. And a lot of traders tend to trade that off as a zero arbitrage type of position. And there's sometimes a gap. And a lot of times people say to me, well, why, are they, why is there a gap? And the important aspect is this is exactly why there's a gap, is there's a potential for the deal to fail. And that optionality, if you want to call it, is potentially why some of these supposed arbitrage positions aren't really arbitrage positions. It's just how the market is pricing the probability of the deal actually going ahead. I think that's also an important point to raise. Something I want to actually throw back to you uh, is that when we look at these kinds of transactions, I mean, it's also a very different thing. In the South African market, where you have a fair amount of investment holding companies, they tend to trade at a discount to their NAVs. This arguably compromises or adjusts the economics of their ability to do deals. And maybe if you can talk to us about, you know, some of that and the activity in the South African market on that particular aspect. 
Yeah, 100%. So the one thing I do just want to say quickly, transaction capitals P's come down a lot. So you're absolutely right. It was ridiculous, but it was based on huge impairments in the SA taxi book. And so the stuff you would be seeing on screen is huge, but they recently released the trading update, which gives a much better idea of where it's come down to. And you're looking at PE ratios of sort of upper teens. So, you know, still quite high in SA and still high from where it was. It might even be in the 20s, actually, I must check, but it's not like crazy, crazy. And that's why I think they got away with that. So with investment holding companies, you know, they do trade at a discount to NAV in South Africa. They didn't used to. In around 2015, 2016, people were paying a premium to book for this stuff because they believe that if you just give your money to the best deal makers in the country, they will go and make magic happen. And unfortunately, many people were burnt along the way. And we had these kind of aggregators running around mopping up whatever they could get their hands on. So the thesis was really basic. It was, well, if our listed company is trading at 12x PE and we can buy stuff at a 6x PE, we basically, you know, double the value of those earnings overnight. Now, I always looked at this and this was when I was in like, you know, my heydays of corporate finance in the market. So I saw a lot of this stuff. And I always thought to myself, a basket of stuff at 6XP is kind of still worth 6XP. It's not magically worth 12. You know, this doesn't make sense. And it didn't make sense. And I mean, there are many examples of companies on the JC over five years that their share price has really fallen over. Um, Ascendus, EOH, Steinoff is another excellent example. But there are other companies that have kind of made that aggregator model work, like a Bidvest, for example. But those are operators. And the investment holding companies trade at a discount because the management teams are not cheap. So firstly, you know, the whole thing together cannot be worth the intrinsic value of everything at the bottom because there's an operating costs line at the top. And once you put a perpetual value on that, you have to then obviously subtract that from the from the value. Plus then there's stuff like, you know, deferred tax. So if the investment holding company sells any of these underlying businesses, there's actually a capital gains tax payable, which you won't see in that intrinsic value, depending on how the company does it. It's a favorite trick of Zeta. I think it is. It is Zeta. It's the where they go and they give you the intrinsic value, but they don't show you deferred tax. And there's a little footnote that says, this excludes deferred tax. I mean, thanks. You know, we'd all love to exclude SARS from our lives, but that's not real life. So... It's really hard to do deals with those shares because they are at a discount. So what that means is every time you go and do a transaction with someone on a share for share basis, you're giving them your assets at a discounted value as opposed to Zoom trying to do deals with very expensive shares, which is what you want to be doing. Obviously, somewhere in the middle is kind of the truth, you know, which is how transaction capital has managed to get it across the line with We Buy Cars is the shares are probably fairly valued or slightly expensive. And then it's a great time to do share for share deals as opposed to shares that are highly discounted or very expensive. Do you see it as a signal when, you know, is, is it a market top or a stock top when you see companies willing and so eager and hungry to do these, you know, share for share deals? You know, I certainly see that as a risk flag. It certainly pops up on, on my radar. That's the first question. The second question is, is it the inverse of that? If you see someone who's willing to do a, a part share part cash deal is that showing that hey we respect you guys we know you want to take some value off the table but let's all keep some skin in the game that's going to be value accretive i think that you obviously in every instance need to go and have a look at the numbers and see whether it's value accretive but simplistically if i were looking at it from a macro perspective would that be a fair assumption to say look big risk flag on all share for share deals less of a risk flag on part share, part cash. And hey, in the rare instances where it's all cash, uh, maybe it's actually the company that's being acquired that needs to rethink their price. And I think of, for example, some of the corporate action that's happened in the South African market of companies getting taken out because maybe their valuations, the market's just not pricing them appropriately. Yeah, so base rule of thumb is if a company's issuing shares, whether it's a rights issue or in a share for share deal, they generally think their shares are quite highly valued. If the company's buying back its own shares, 
then they think it's undervalued. So those two points hold in general. Obviously, if you see a seller of a business taking only shares, I mean, that in and of itself is a great sign. So when the deal is announced, it's quite risky to think, okay, will this go through? But then you need to look at the conditions of the transaction. And that was what happened with Zoom here is that it was not, you know, it's, it still needed to be approved essentially by the sellers. Whereas, you know, what you'll often see is a big company on the JSE mopping up a very small business. I don't see it so often anymore, but it does still happen. And there you'll often see the sellers just taking shares in the whole code because they can sell them easily without breaking the price in the market. So that's also part of it. The size of the deal often makes a considerable difference. You can't roll into a listed company, take 30% of the shares and then get out. You know, you will destroy the price on your way out. It's just one of those things. So that's that's part of the consideration. I mean, again, to use transaction capital as an example, they did a rights offer or rather an accelerated book build, I lie, earlier this year to go and raise money to get the We Buy Cars tranche to get from, I think it was 49.9 to basically 74.9. It's just closed now. They announced it closed today. They needed to go and raise the money to do the part cash, part share. So as much as the We Buy Cars sellers were prepared to accept shares, they also went and placed new equity in the market at their current valuation to fund the rest. That's part of why I love the guys at Transaction Capital is because they are great capital allocators. They work that balance sheet and they work it properly, you know, and, and a lot of it comes down to the management team. So yes, there are some macro rules of thumb. That is true, but it does very much come down to the specifics of the transaction, the relative multiples on either side, you know, the size of the deal relative to the listed company and all those kind of considerations. I mean, a wonderful example of how not to do it was Huge Group and Adapt IT, an absolute disaster where Huge ended up with 1.9% of Adapt IT because they made a general offer to Adapt IT shareholders to swap into Huge and uh, they only got 1.9% acceptances and they didn't have a minimum acceptance threshold on the offer. So now they're going to have this awkward situation where they're going to end up selling those shares to Valoris at less than they bought them for having incurred fees along the way. I mean, it's it's disastrous. And I guess, Mo, my last point to raise, you know, as we run out of time, is Valoris is part of Constellation, which is in your neck of the woods. Uh, it's a Canadian aggregator of note with a, a CEO who looks a lot like Gandalf. I've been told by many people to go and invest the time to actually read their story, go and read the old investor letters. I mean, they do a gazillion deals in the software space. And from a Canadian perspective, I mean, are they kind of seen as the, the deal-making experts on that side? Canada is an interesting market. It's a, it's a small market. So, you know, when you see a player like that, yes, they do garner a reputation as the, the deal-makers, the wheeler-dealers. And also, you tend to find that they focus on specific niches. So you indicated, you know, that would be a player in the tech space. For me, it's really a, a symptom of markets where... You, they tend towards oligopolistic or monopolistic type of tendencies if, if left alone. And the bigger players who are really good at it get better at it. They know how to do deals in their space. They understand the ecosystem so well that arguably their valuation methodologies are superior to their peers. And that's where if you end up with some of these aggregators, my preference certainly is for a, a hyper-focused aggregator who knows their industry and value chain so well that they would have that information asymmetry, that edge that maybe a more diversified conglomerate could do. Now, it's interesting because you bring up Bidvest, and Bidvest is the opposite. Bidvest has been remarkably successful, but they've done so in so many diverse industries. So that for me would, I guess, be the parting point is that you know it really does depend on 
the, the additional insight someone is able to, to, to have in terms of unlocking some of those synergies from an investment perspective. And the last point, maybe just a closing point for me, is that when doing these deals, whether it's all shares or shares and cash or whatever it may be, the most important thing is if you're going in with an edge. Uh, in the example you had cited, you know, if you're going and it's a general offer and the market's going to look at it and penalize you, you're just going to go through costs and pain and aggravation and destroy shareholder value in the process. Uh, if you're going in and you know there's a strategic investor that I've kind of pinged on the other side that's keen to see this deal happen, even if you don't end up with the size of the stake that you're intending to, a warm call is way better than a cold call. And that is why if we go back to the Zoom, the 5.9 story there, uh, it, it signals almost an inexperienced maybe management team on Zoom's perspective to think that they could just ram this through the market. Uh, and again, you know, that stuff gets exposed, especially when your valuations are quite pricey, is that you can't just ram the stuff down or through investors and have it happen. So, you know, that's it from my side, Ghost. I think it's been a fascinating show. Oh, thank you for your time. And my last point would be as much as Bitvest has done incredibly well, a lot of it is market timing. Go check out Lawn for Life, Brian Joffe's retirement project and the discount to have that is trading at. No matter how good these dealmakers are, so much of it comes down to the environment they're operating in. And that's it from us this week. Thank you for listening to Magic Markets and we'll be back next week. Uh, and again, thank you to our, our listeners. Uh, we look forward to having you you know, spread the news around Magic Markets. Remember to give us a great rating. Uh, and remember, you can subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Remember to visit thefinancegoes.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.